Well, good morning, Antioch. Uh, it's a real uh, treat to be able to join you this morning and worship, uh, <clears throat> worship Jesus as he meets us here. And uh, thank you, Ken, for uh, the gracious introduction. Uh, I do bring greetings this morning from the church that I have the privilege of pastoring in Portland, Theophilus. If you can't say it, it's all right, I can't either. Um, it's a, one of those weird, obscure Bible characters that we thought we'd cling on to and make our church sound really cool when in reality just nobody can say it. Um, but uh, I bring greetings from the church that I have the privilege of pastoring Theophilus, which Ken is going to uh, come and share in just a few weeks. And also, <clears throat> I have one son, uh, Elliot, uh, who, who's four years old. I have one wife by the name of Quinn. Um, I have to clarify, it's Portland, so just <laughs> we're on the same page. I have three emotionally unstable chickens that send their bagaks this morning as well. But in reality, I, I uh, have the privilege of living in, uh, in a part of Portland uh, that <clears throat> inner southeast Portland, right across the street from Warner Pacific, uh, that in many respects sort of gets understood and caricatured as this <clears throat> almost godless um, entirely secular, anti-God neighborhood. And what I've come to find uh, is really anything but, but that. Uh, it does really seem to me over the course of the last seven years as I've lived in Portland uh, that, that Jesus, uh, even in a place like Portland, as weird and funky as it is, Jesus really loves Portland. And he really loves Bend. And he really loves our world and that we can know today and have hope uh, that his kingdom is coming, his kingdom will have no end, and that we don't have to be afraid in any way, shape, or form because the light has destroyed the darkness. In a lot of ways, I, I've sensed over the course of the last few years a real change in sort of the, the ethos and the culture and the feel of a lot of um, Christians. I, I increasingly... Uh, sense and see Christians who feel almost uh, af afraid of what's, what's to come. I, I don't really know how to describe it other than um, it's not very difficult for you, for you to, it's, it's, it's not challenging to find one article or one story or one, uh, another book that deal with this, this idea that the church in America seems to be shrinking that things are changing, that the kind of societal um, ethos that we live in is undergoing fundamental shifts. And I think a lot of Christians are really scared of that. They're really afraid of, of what's coming. Is the church dying? Is, 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 something, uh, is something taking place? Are we gonna be here in the next 30 years? And when I look at the life of Jesus, I find that Jesus, <clears throat> even in his own death, Jesus was abandoned. Jesus was left by his best friends. I often think that we, 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 we sort of understand it, that God is only God as long as the church is really big. We're sort of like, there's a movie uh, perhaps you've seen called Elf. There's a scene in that movie where Santa Claus can't fly because no one believes in him anymore. Sorry if I ruined it. 
Friends, the good news of Jesus and the truth of the gospel is that it is not in any way, shape, or form indicative of who God is. God is not any less God because of what is going on in our world. There is no connection between whether if we believe in him, he's real or not. Friends, he is alive and he is real and we put our hope and our trust in him no matter how small and how few people are in this room this morning or big, it doesn't matter. He is Lord, he is King. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, this morning, in the congregation of your saints, as we gather in the name of Jesus, we believe in you. That doesn't make you God, you are God. But we believe in you. We throw ourselves into your arms. We hug you, we embrace you. We wanna see you, Jesus. May your church not be captured by fear or trepidation, but by the Spirit of God, would you give us boldness and hope and trust that your kingdom will come and bend as it is in heaven. It will come in Portland as it is in heaven. We worship you this morning. In the name of Jesus. Church, would you say amen? Amen. amen. I'm going to invite you, if I could, to uh, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 17. I want to read a, a story this morning that I've been uh, sort of mulling over for some time. It's a, a, a sort of a, a beautiful uh, story of what we would call the transfiguration story. <clears throat> really, the story is Jesus has been walking with his disciples for a couple years now, maybe a year and a half, maybe two years, but he's been walking with them for quite some time. And now all of a sudden, and a bunch of you people are going to be really pleased with this. If you live in Bend, you're going to love this. Jesus is going to take his disciples on a hike. He's going to take them up on a hill. And in the middle of this hill, experience this hike. They've got their REI gear. They're ready up on the hill. They've purified their water. They have their trail mix. They're up on this mountain with Jesus. And here on the top of this mountain... Jesus is going to reveal himself to his disciples in a way they would have never imagined. Hear this story. Matthew 17, beginning of verse one. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, who were his best friends. These three uh, men were the, the ones who he spent most of his time with. He had 12 disciples. He spent most of his time with Peter, James, and John. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And there he was transfigured. And the word that Matthew, in his own brilliance here, the word that he uses is the word metamorpho. You and I would, um, a metamorphosis, uh, a transformation, uh, a, a kind of, um, he, a, a, new, a new sense, a new revelation of who he was, he transforms in front of them, he metamorphosizes in front of them. For any of the young ones in the room, um, the first transformer in history is Jesus Christ. Right. He transfigures, he metamorphoses before them. And his face shone like the sun. And his clothes became as white as light. Just then appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. And Peter says to Jesus, and this is the greatest, I think the greatest understatement in the whole Bible. Peter says to Jesus, 
Lord, it's good for us to be up here. (laughs) Captain Obvious here. Clearly, Peter, this is a special moment. Jesus is there before you, shining brighter than the sun, and Moses and Elijah, who have been dead for almost a thousand years, and, and you're hiking with the three of these. Yes, Peter, it is good for you to be here. And then he says, if you wish, I'll put up three shelters. I'll put up three tents. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Let's stay up here for a while, basically is what Peter is saying. And while he was speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, this is my son who I love and with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, hey, don't tell anybody what you just saw until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. The disciples asked him, why then do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? And Jesus said, to be sure, Elijah comes and will restore all things. But I say to you, Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but have done to him everything they wished. In the same way the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands, then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. Friends, this is the word of God. Would you say with me this morning, amen, amen. I want to wrestle with this hike for a little bit and talk a little bit about how we can see Jesus afresh. I want to talk this morning about how we can see Jesus afresh, like these disciples who had been walking with Jesus for a year and a half, two years, although they'd never seen anything quite like this experience. They'd seen Jesus do some incredible things. He turned water into wine. Every single person in this room wishes they were at that miracle. It's pretty epic. They saw demons cast out of people. They saw, uh, they, they saw a couple loaves and a couple fish turn into a buffet for thousands. But they'd never seen anything like this. This was a, a, a unique experience. This was a different kind of experience. They'd never had anything quite like this before. And here they are going to see Jesus in a way that they've never seen him before. In the same way, I know and suspect that in this kind of gathering this morning, there are many of us who've been walking with Jesus for years, and maybe we've even seen cool little things along the way. We didn't see him turn water into wine, but we saw something pretty close. Maybe we've seen miracles. Maybe we've seen Jesus do powerful things, but... We've been walking with him for a couple years and one thing remains sure, we want to see him in a new way. We want to see him afresh. And that's what I want to speak to this morning is um, how can you and I, friends, how can we see Jesus afresh? How can we see him anew? <clears throat> we got to do a little homework on this particular story and then we're going to kind of un- un- unwrap this because this there, there's a lot going on in this particular story. But in order to really kind of grasp what's going on here, we've got to go, um, we've got to go into the old, kind of the, the Hebrew story a little bit, this, the, the Jewish story, the Old Testament. 
And, and one of the sort of important things we've got to grasp about God's nature in the Bible is that over and over and over again in the Bible, God, although God reveals himself to people and God shows up in unique, unique ways, over and over and over again in the Bible, we find that God is invisible. I mean, Jesus said that, right? He said, no one has ever seen God but God the begotten Jesus, who's at the Father's side, has made him known. Jesus says in John 4, he says, God is spirit. His worshipers worship in spirit and in truth. God in the Bible is, in many respects, he is invisible. He is beyond us. He transcends the earth. He transcends our minds. He, he goes beyond us. God is, is beyond us. He is invisible. Now, I know immediately there are two groups of people in this room that completely hate that idea and are frankly mad that I just said what I said. Uh, the immediate, the, the first group of people that just hate this idea, that hate this idea that God is invisible, uh, are the really sort of my, my smart sort of scientist friends, my smart friends who are rational and logical, who would say things only can be true if they can be tested, if they're observable, if they're empirical, if you can see it, if you can touch it, if you can taste it, <clears throat> then it's real. And you're not going to like this idea that God is invisible. And you don't like it when Christians say God is invisible. You might be a Christian, you don't like the fact that you say God is invisible. But time and time again, friends, we find that God in the Bible just doesn't fit in a test tube. Um, God is in many respects invisible and, that's, and that, that, may, that may trouble you. You go, well, we can't test, we can't know. How can we know? And you know the second group. That may be one group. That may be one. But you know who the real, here, here's the really funny part. You know who doesn't like the idea that God is invisible? You know who hates it the most? You know who it is? Here it is. Read the Old Testament. You know who hates it? God's people. They can't stand it. In fact, time and time again in the Hebrew Bible, we find that God's people come to, to come to God and they say, God, 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 why don't you show up in all the ways the other gods show up? Why don't you show up in a way where you can, we can make a, a statue out of you and we can worship you? Why don't, why don't you come in such a way and we'll make little, little paintings of you and we can bow and worship? Why don't you come in the ways that the Egyptians did? We can make little golden, golden cows and, and we, can, we can worship you in that way and... God's people in the Bible don't like the fact that God is invisible because all the other religions had gods that could be seen. God's people don't like it. Now, here's the truth. While God is invisible, and this is the good news, while God is beyond us, while God is, transcends us, while God is beyond us, God also comes to us in forms that we can handle. Old Testament scholars would call these theophanies. These are stories in which God, the invisible God becomes the visible God. He comes to us where we are. Let me give you an example of, of what I'm talking about here. When an invisible God, when the invisible God becomes invisible. You remember that little story about Moses? Moses is walking through the field and he comes across a bush on fire that starts talking to him. Anybody in this room had that experience? I don't see any hands up. And there's a reason. 
we have hotlines for people that have that experience, right? People, you don't, you don't just walk up to a burning bush and go, and have a conversation and the bush tells you, hey, by the way, my name is Elie Asher Elie. I am what I am. Never have you talked to a bush and the bush revealed the name of God. If that's happened to you, let's talk after our gathering today. You should probably be starting your own denomination. Which, by the way, it's funny, that, that story, Moses going up to the burning bush uh, a bunch of Jewish rabbis have actually talked about that story for years and they, they believe, I've heard, I've heard it said by a number of Jewish rabbis that Moses, they, they believe, wasn't actually the first one to come upon the bush that was burning and speaking. He was just the one crazy enough to stop and talk to it. Right? There were actually a bunch of people that went by that were like, I'm not talking to that bush. But Moses was willing to stop. He was willing to have a conversation with God. And it was there in the bush that the invisible God became visible. It was there in that moment that God revealed himself in a way that people could handle. The story of Moses. I love the story of Moses. He goes up on a mountain, right? He, he, he goes up on the mountain. He receives the law of God and he comes back down the mountain. He gives the law of God to his people. He comes down, I love this part, he comes down, do you remember all the people down below were worshiping another god, a golden cow? Do you remember how mad Moses got? He killed thousands of people. He had a bad day. He was mad. Which by the way, that story is exactly why pastors have a hard time taking sabbaticals. And here's why. We don't like taking sabbaticals for two reasons. It's a lose-lose scenario. I'm proud of your pastor for taking one. He, needs one. he needed one, and I need one. Sabbaticals are bad because it's a lose-lose scenario. You go up the mountain and come back down. If everybody's worshiping a golden calf, you were a bad leader. But if they're worshiping God, you're unnecessary. Right. He comes down the mountain. Do you remember in, in, Moses 30, in Exodus 33, Moses meets God and God shows up to him. The text in chapter 33, verse 11, Moses meets with God. God descends, he comes and speaks to him and it says Moses speaks to God face to face as a man speaks to a friend. And that, that's confusing because friends, there are so many, you remember all those times in the Bible where it says that if you saw God's face, you would die? You remember all those times? It's, it's mentioned like five or six times in the Old Testament. If you see God's face, you'll die. If you see God's face, you'll die. In fact, just, just after that, God says to him, if you saw my face, you would die. No one can see my face and live, God says. You see what happens right there. I, 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 there's a, a preacher by the name of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones who years ago taught him this, and he said God was willing to show Moses his glory, but he could not show him his face. Because had Moses actually seen God for who he was, he would have died. And there's, friends, there's a, there's a truth to this, and that is that you and I, God, God is so beyond us, God is so holy and so good that if you and I saw him as he was, if we saw his face, we would die. Friends, Jack Nicholson was totally right. You literally cannot handle the truth. 
literally, which is why God has to show up as a carpenter. God has to show up in a way that you can handle. God has to show up in the face of a friend. God has to show up in a way that you can receive. And what's this, this story that we just read, Matthew 17, is the story of, of the invisible, the, the God that's above all things showing up and saying, I'm gonna let you see a little bit of me. Which, by the way, can, in 1 John, there's a line in 1 John that says that there will come a day when we enter glory, when we will see his face and we will be as he is because he will know us. Our hope is that future moment when we see his face, his, his glory for who he is, and we are with him. But God has to come to us in a way that we can handle. Here's what I want to suggest to you this morning, two things. You want to see Jesus afresh, you want to see him afresh, you want to see him anew, two things. First is this. You want to see Jesus, you need to expect a lot of disappointment. You need to be okay being disappointed. What in the world do I mean? Look at this story. Moses, the disciples go with Jesus up on a mountainside. And there they, they see Jesus in this incredible experience. And while it was an incredible experience, I want to suggest to you this morning that I think it wasn't just incredible, I also think it was an incredibly disappointing experience. Very disappointing. How in the world can I say that? How is this disappointing? If I saw Jesus do this, that wouldn't be disappointing. I think it would be disappointing if this happened to you. Look at, look at this. First of all, what was disappointing? Three things. First of all, can I point out that these disciples, when they see Jesus metamorphosized, revealed, transfigured, they see him in his glory. Can I point out that they don't actually get, in this story, they don't actually get what they want. Peter's initial response is, hey, Jesus, let's put some tents up here. Let's stay for a while. Jesus says, no. We're gonna go down the mountainside. We're not gonna stay for very long. So there's a sense of disappointment. He didn't get what he wanted. He, he didn't, he, God didn't reveal himself to him in a way that he would have sort of expected. Which, fr friends, the, tr the truth is, if we expect God to come to us as we want God to come to us, there's, there's going to be a problem. And friends, we do this all the time to God. We'll say, God, I will love you. I will love you, God, as long as my wife never hurts me. I have the white picket fence. My children stop cussing. I have all the money I need. I will love you as long as dot, 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 dot. We put terms on how God comes to us. Which, let's be honest, friends, that's not, in, that's not a marriage, that's a prenuptial agreement. It's saying, God, I, I will love you as long as I get what I want. That doesn't happen in the story. Peter does not get what he wants. God comes to Peter, Jesus comes to Peter in the way Jesus wants to come to Peter. Second, there's an emotional disturbance. I mean, look, notice how they respond to seeing Jesus glorified. They fall on their face terrified. 
And can I point out, in the story of the Bible, have you ever noticed how many times in the Bible somebody either sees God or sees an angel and their response is to fall on the ground and say something like, I wanna die? It is never, they never see an angel or God in the Bible and they have like a, a kind of Thomas Kincaid sort of experience. They're never like, oh, that's sweet. They fall on their face and they're like, ah, I wanna die. I'm terrified, what is going on? It's emotionally scary. They, they, they fall on their face scared to death. And then, thirdly, Notice that Jesus says to them as they're coming down the mountain. Don't tell anybody what just happened. <laughs> they're coming down. They've just seen the most incredible thing. They've seen the most incredible thing. And Jesus says, hey guys, hey guys. Shh. Don't tell anyone. Which you and I both know, if, if we were up on that mountain with Jesus, this is, because if, if you're going to start a religion, these are the kinds of stories you put on Instagram, right? You tweet this stuff. If you and I were in this scenario and Jesus was transfigured, you know what you and I would do? We'd get our phones and we'd be like, Everyone would, that stuff is Instagrammable. The transfigured Lord makes, goes viral. When you're starting a religion, it's stuff like this, you wanna get out there. And on their way down the mountain, Jesus says, and that, might, that might have blown you out of the water, but I gotta tell you, don't tell anybody. Now, I, I just, I do want to point out, I find it rather comical <laughs> that this story still made its way into the Bible. Peter. <laughs> Leaking Jesus stories. Imagine that. You have to keep quiet. How disappointing. You didn't get what you want. You didn't stay up as long as you want. You didn't get to tell everybody you wanted to tell. You're scared to death. I want to suggest to you something maybe you wouldn't anticipate hearing a preacher say to you. But it's this. If you want to experience Jesus as he is, you're going to be disappointed. It's never going to be everything you wished it was. You think I'm crazy. Think about the guy. You remember the rich young ruler? He comes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, I want to follow you. I want to follow you. And then Jesus says, well, here's what you got to do. Sell everything you got, give it to the poor, come follow me, and then you'll have treasure in heaven. And every single one of the gospels says the same thing. The rich young ruler heard Jesus say to him, give it all away. And in every text it says, he walked away sad or disappointed. Jesus says something to him that was hard. And friends, how important for us. And here's why, because you're Americans. You get everything that you want. 
Friends, if you and I think, here's, here's the hard part of the gospel. If you and I think that the purpose of Jesus coming to the world was exclusively to give you everything that you want, you have missed the call of Jesus. Because friends, he's not, and Americans, you need to hear that more than anybody. You cannot tell me that the gospel is about your comfort if the same guy who's bringing you salvation is saying, pick up your cross and carry it. Because that is not comfortable. Jesus doesn't give us everything we want. What's beautiful about Jesus is he always gives us what we need. He doesn't give us always what we want, but we always get what we need. He gives us a love that we need, the grace that we need. He provides the meal that we need. God, God is so incredibly good at caring for our needs. I'm not entirely convinced that he cares about our wants. There was a famous Japanese theologian by the name of Koyume who said Americans, when they hear the call to carry the cross, he says Americans like to imagine that the cross has a little handle on it like a lunchbox and they can carry it around with them that way. And the truth is, friends, we often imagine the cross to be like that. It's easy. It's simple. When in reality, it's incredibly painful. Why in the world are you, it took you a lot of work to get to church this morning. Got your clothes on, you did your makeup, you got your diapers changed or your child's diaper changed. Maybe you did get your diaper changed. You drove here, you had an argument in the car. You made it all to be told, be disappointed. You're welcome. Why is it fundamentally important as a follower of Jesus to be okay with the hard parts of Jesus? Why? Here's why. In my, I'm a part of a denomination and the woman, the woman who started our denomination was a fireball. Her name was Amy Semple McPherson. She was kind of crazy. She had some weird stories that I do not understand. But this woman in the early 1900s was moved by God. Thousands upon thousands of people came to faith through the ministry of Amy Semple McPherson. She changed the city of Los Angeles and she changed the world. She was the first woman in the world to own a radio license. The Los Angeles Times had a column about her every week just to tell the story of what Amy was doing this week. She worked for higher wages in Los Angeles. She took care of policemen and firemen. She exposed corruption in the city. She also had her brokenness, which is exactly why I love Amy Simple McPherson. If Jesus can work through Amy Simple McPherson, I'm doing quite all right. She was a broken woman. Any of you in this room that think that you are precluded, that you are kept from being used by God because of your brokenness have to read a biography of this woman, you gotta read the Bible itself. Look at that, the first person who preaches in the Bible is Peter, the guy who denied Jesus just days earlier. I've come to the conclusion that if, God, if, if a sinner cannot preach the gospel, I do not know who's left. I do not know who's left. Amy was a broken woman who God used 
And she was fiery, man. When she would preach, people would listen. She on average preached 17 different sermons a week. Different sermons. Crazy. It was the early 1930s, 19, 19, around the 19, 1932, when uh, Los Angeles was uh, utterly just sort of torn apart by racial strife. And Amy Semple McPherson was one of the only white preachers at the time who believed in bringing back together all the races to worship together. She believed in blacks and whites, Hispanics, Asian communities worshiping God together. She was the first person to actually have an interracial uh, sort of articulation of the faith in Los Angeles. And there was a Sunday morning where she got up to preach. She had her little pulpit in, in, uh, in, at uh, Angeles Temple in downtown Los Angeles. She gets up to preach. And her Bible's open and she starts to preach. And in the middle of the service, all of a sudden, a group in the back of people in white robes from the KKK walked in and come and sit down right here. And they come and sit down in the front row and in the middle of her sermon, they start to yell at her and berate her for what she was doing. And Amy Semple McPherson, in the middle of her sermon, they're yelling at her. She stops what she's doing and she, you just gotta imagine this sweet woman. She takes her hand and she goes, she looks at him, and I'm not actually speaking about this group right here, I apologize. <laughs> she looks at him and she says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. God loves all races. And they shut up, sat down, and left. And after the church service, there was a person at the park across the street, Echo Park, who had a camera. And standing there, sitting there in the middle of the park, they snapped a photo of it. Sitting there in the middle of the park was a pile of white KKK robes. And this group of men met Jesus and left behind their racism. Have you noticed that every time Jesus calls somebody to come and follow, people always leave something behind? They leave behind the tax collector's booth. They leave behind an occupation. They leave behind a relationship. There's some element of disappointment. You know, when we're done with church today, I don't know how you guys work here. I don't know if you're allowed to bring coffee into your church gathering. If you're not, I'm really sorry. People would literally leave our church if we didn't allow coffee in our sanctuary. Don't leave this church if you can't bring coffee in it. It's not their fault. When we're done here, in a normal church gathering, we'll leave, Christians will all leave, and, and you'll all leave behind your coffee cups, under your seat and your garbage. I don't know who you think comes and picks that up, if you think Ken or the ushers, or the elders come through and just pick that, or angels come down and pick up all your garbage, which is weird to me. If you leave behind garbage but not a tithe, that's awkward. If you're gonna leave your gar garbage, at least give some money too, right? You're gonna leave your junk behind. Christians are good at this. We're good at leaving garbage where we go. We'll just leave it behind. We'll leave. It'll be fine. We were finishing a worship gathering 
Somebody in our church was picking up all the Christian garbage. <laughs> Somebody found a little bag of meth. And I know the religious, the, the Pharisee in the room is gonna say, what in the world is somebody bringing drugs to church for? And I gotta tell you what happened. Somebody met Jesus and they left behind their drugs that day. And that is precisely, friends, what happens when we meet Jesus. When we meet Jesus, there will always be an element of leaving something behind. For Peter, it was leaving behind his expectations. He did not get what he wanted in this story. What does it mean for you? If you worship your expectations, it's gonna be really, really hard for God to accomplish what he wants in your life. God's gonna accomplish what God wants to accomplish. But our expectations, friends, the things that, we, that hold us down, let it go. Let go your unfair expectations. Let go of the things that hold you back from following Jesus. So be disappointed. Put that in your journal. Be disappointed. Jesus will always give you what you need. He won't always give you what you want, but he will always give you what you need. And the second thing I want to suggest to you this morning is not only do you need to sort of build in if you want to see Jesus afresh, that it's, it may not be exactly what you want it to be, but secondly, if you want Jesus to reveal himself afresh, if you want to experience him in a new way, you've got to be okay with him touching you right where you're at. Not somewhere else, but right here. You've gotta be okay with the fact that he's gonna meet you right here, not in some other environment, not if you get out of this marriage and find another one, not if you get out of that thing or this thing, not, a, not if you can find a new environment. Jesus wants to touch you right here and right now. Did you see the good news in the story? The disciples are on their face, scared to death, terrified. Are we gonna die? I mean, they've read their Old Testaments. They know if you see God, you're done. They're scared to death. And what does Jesus do? Jesus comes down to them. And he comes down to their level. And he touches them. And then they stand up. Friends, I don't know if there's a more poignant or clear image of the gospel of Jesus than the fact that God comes down to our level and he touches us where we are. In fact, it would be, it would be frankly, it would be the false gospel had it said that Jesus said, hey, stop being scared, get up, and I'll touch you then. That's the false gospel. The false gospel always says, always says, do this, do that, then God loves you. The true gospel will always say, God loves you, now go and do differently. He goes to them on the ground. 
and he touches them right where they are. You know what this speaks to? Have you noticed in the Bible how many times Jesus touches people? Introverts, I don't think they would have liked him. He's super touchy-feely in the Gospels. He's just always touching people. He's always spitting in people's eyes. Let's try that during greeting time sometime. Turn to your neighbor, make some mud out of your spit on their face. He's always touching people, always. He is always touching people. He's touching sick people, he's touching his disciples, he's touching religious people. He's In our litigious culture of people suing one another and whatnot, Jesus would have a really rough go in the 21st century. He, he would want to embrace people and they'd probably sue him. Don't touch me. Jesus is always touching people. I have a colleague, I teach at George Fox Evangelical Seminary in Portland and Fuller down in California and I, I have a colleague who's a psychologist and she was describing to me uh, some time ago about this new concept in the realm of psychology. And there's a, this sort of whole discussion of, in psychology on this topic of what's called, and if there's any psychologists in the room, you've probably heard of this, called the psychology of disgust. Disgust, things that make you disgusted and gross and icky, a psychology of disgust. And there's this, all this conversation right now about the psychology of disgust. And the idea goes that in the normal realm of relationship, usually, when we imagine relationships between two people or, or people who uh, live in community or in, in social relationships, we always imagine psychologically that dirty people, when they are touched, makes clean people dirty too. That would mean that if you as a follower of Jesus go out and, and love on somebody that would get you in trouble or, or, or care for somebody that uh, socioeconomically is below your class or, or, or you love somebody that, so, that socially is unacceptable or you love sort of our modern day lepers, you love people that are, that are unlovable, you go out and do it. The psychology of disgust would say that in the normal realm, the dirty person will always make the clean, the perceived clean person dirty too which of course plays itself out in most realms of our life. If I was to take a clean, pristine apple and dump it in a toilet, is it gonna be clean? Are you gonna be eating it? No. The apple, the clean apple is made dirty by the dirty toilet water. But in the story of Jesus, that is reversed. In the normal realm of our world, when a perceived holy person touches a dirty person, the dirty person makes the holy person dirty too. But in the story of Jesus Christ, when the holy person touches the dirty person, that holiness is transferred to the dirty person. It is reversed. Jesus is always touching people and imparting in their life his grace, his mercy, as holiness. When you touch Jesus, he does not become dirty. You become holy. 
And secondly, when Jesus stoops down and touches these disciples, it speaks to God's nature that God comes to us where we are. We see this nature, this character of God throughout the Bible. In the Old Testament, in the Hebrew story, we have, uh, you might recall the, this thing called the, um, uh, the, the Ark of the Covenant. Do you remember the Ark of the Covenant? Not Noah's Ark, the Ark of the Covenant. It was that box, that, that metal wood box that they would carry around that had um, Aaron's staff. It had, you, you've seen Indiana Jones, you know what was in it. Um, uh, uh, manna bread and the Ten Commandments and they would carry this thing around and they would, they would carry it everywhere they went and God, it was, it was as though God, the symbol of God's presence was, was with them. They would carry this Ark of the Covenant with them everywhere they went. Years ago, there was a guy named Francis Schaeffer. He was a theologian. He wrote a little book on that ark called No Little People, and he talks about that ark and how that ark, when you look at the ark and the things that the ark was made of, speak to who God was. The ark was made out of wood. It was made out of a certain kind of wood called Asasia wood, which was normal, everyday wood. It was the wood for everyday people. It was not expensive. It was normal wood, and it was made of gold, the most expensive and pure thing. Francis Schaeffer years ago said that speaks to God's nature. God is holy and beyond us, but God is mundane and with us. And if you looked at the ark, Francis Schaeffer talks about, if you looked at the ark, on top of the ark, there was this thing called the, 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 the mercy seat. You remember the mercy seat? There was a, this covering on top of the ark, and inside the ark would be the law of God, but on top would be the mercy seat. And it was there on top of the mercy seat when they would sacrifice animals, they would Split, put the blood of the animal on top of the mercy seat. And they say that if they actually found the Ark of the Covenant today, it would be caked in blood. The top of it would be caked in blood because of years of blood being, being splattered on top. And it was there. It was called the mercy seat because God's mercy was met at the mercy seat. And the law was on the inside. Francis Schaeffer has a whole section where he says, friends, you've gotta understand. God's people, if they wanted to go to the commandments, they had to go through the mercy first. You never got to the mercy by going through the commandments. You got to the commandments by going through the mercy. And his point was this. That is the good news it is not clean your life up and then God will love you. It is find mercy first and then God starts working on your life. Amen? That is such good news. It is the nature of Jesus. It is the one we worship. If you believe Jesus is maniacal and power hungry and just after power and authority and forcing people to worship him, you cannot say that and then wash, watch him wash people's feet. He's humble. He comes to us. He loves us where we are. 